Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talks TV and Movie Show. This week on the show, Oscar-winning director Guillermo del Toro on his new movie Nightmare Alley starring Kate Blanchett and Bradley Cooper. Mark Royal reviews Kenneth Branagh's most personal movie yet, Belfast. And prominent Irish-American Larry Donnelly chats to me about his favourite movie. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well. And dare I say it, there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is hope on the horizon. And, uh... A feeling of optimism that we may be in the end game of all this stuff we've been living with for nearly two years now, as you're well aware, as you're well aware. So I do hope you're well. Lots of people last week in touch about Ricky Gervais and they enjoyed the interview we did with Afterlife and indeed the cast. But a lot of people saying how much they enjoyed series three of Afterlife and just how poignant, particularly the last episode was. And the show seems to have gone gangbusters. Uh, and Afterlife. If you, if you haven't watched it, it, it is delightful, delightful, sad, upbeat, tragic, hilariously funny, a, a lot of things, not quite like anything else out there. It's on Netflix. Watch it. Some people can't stand it, but a lot of people absolutely adore it and have been quite moved by it all. And I was one of those. Now, something very different on TV I was watching this week was this. Zone, 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 that was Nasty Girl, the 90s chart topper from the former Queens of Hip Hop. Why did they break up and where are they at? Sorry, this is my bad. Oh, snap, is that, that's you. Baby, she's famous. My bro had her post on the wall. Her? Really? What happened? Rude? Oh, you better think. Can you believe it's been 20 years since we performed together? Let's go back. We stood on top of the world for a hot minute. The only time I had anything resembling a family is when we were together. The dumbest thing we ever did was throw away friendships that most people never had. Let's get this group back together. Now that's a clip of Queens. It was out in America late last year and it came to Disney Plus this week on Wednesday. I've seen the first two episodes, which are up there. And as you got from the clip there, it's about four ladies who were hip-hop stars, rap stars back in the 90s and they went off and they disbanded for various reasons and they've had their own lives now but they're deciding to come back together and their lives are in kind of freefall to a certain extent. One of them is a mother of five children whose marriage may be on the rocks. One of them has a daughter she doesn't see. Another one's a TV star that's not working out well. Another one of them has problems at home and you know, you get the picture. It's pretty good though. Uh, it's not going to change your life, but it's very entertaining. The music is fantastic. A lot of the actresses in it are actually rappers and hip hop stars. Brandy is in it, for instance. And the music really barrels through the thing, but it's funny and it's sweet. It's a good drama. It's a good comedy. I'm only two in, but it's nice, pleasant escapism. So I'm quite optimistic after two episodes of Queens now streaming on Disney Plus. Let me know if you might have seen it yet or if you've seen anything that you want to talk about. Even anything on the side of a wall <laughs> that you want to tell me about. John underscore Farty is my Twitter handle or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. 
Now, one of the big new releases of the week is Nightmare Alley, and it stars Bradley Cooper as a kind of charismatic drifter, Stanton Carlyle. The movie begins with him setting fire to his house, literally his old life, and he joins a carnival. Uh, almost by chance and he meets some strange people in the carnival including a very unusual carnival master played by the great William Defoe he also rubs up against the clairvoyant Tony Collette and her husband and he starts to learn the secrets of mentalism and how to basically delude people into thinking he's capable of reading their minds and contacting the dead and all that and he falls for a fellow performer Molly played by Rooney Mara and they leave the carnival and they go off to the big city where he's going to ply his trade as kind of a mentalist, duping people, particularly Upper West Side, New York rich people, out of their money, claiming he can contact their dead relatives. Now, he partners with a psychoanalyst, Kate Blanchett, who's brilliant in it, as this possibly scheming psychoanalyst. It's kind of a very Philomene War movie. It's set in the 30s and 40s. Kate Blanchett is immense in it. Now, it's directed by Guillermo del Toro, who people know from all all sorts of things, Pan's Labyrinth, The Devil's Backbone, Pacific Rim, Hellboy. And of course, he won an Oscar for The Shape of Water. It actually, he won Best Director, Best Movie for that a couple of years ago, which is all about this really strange fish man falling in love with Sally Hawkins. It's an incredible movie, divided people. Guillermo's movies, they tend to have fantasy elements in all of them and, and horror elements in a lot of them, like like Hellboy and, and even Pan's Labyrinth. And he also did a great series on Netflix called Troll Hunters. It's kind of a kid's show, but it's brilliant. He's a fascinating guy. So this was a bit of a departure for him because it's not, doesn't contain any fantastical elements per se, that is. So I was delighted to get a chance to talk to him because he is a seriously good talker and a seriously big thinker about cinema and more besides. Take a listen to this. I suppose a lot's been made of the fact that this is your first movie in a long career that doesn't have a fantasy element. Now, I know you could argue that maybe it does when it comes to, you know, the carnival and stuff like that but technically speaking maybe there were no you know f- there were no fish people or anything like that yeah of was course it, what was it did you have a real sense of i'm doing a serious grown-up non-fantastical movie or maybe it doesn't work that way you're just telling a story well the, the, the question occurred it didn't occur in that shape in the sense that i uh, i consider all the movies i do whether they're fantastical or not serious but what i did know that was a little bit daunting and scary is when you remove the safety net of whimsy mm-hmm. and invention and 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 that requires a completely different narrative discipline in a way yeah, you know sure uh so it carried with it a lot of learning in a good way i mean i'm 57 i've been doing this for 30 years and frankly Every time I can learn, I welcome it. So in this instance, uh, I knew that the, there needed to be a dreamlike atmosphere to even the most real of the scenes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I knew there was going to be a magical atmosphere in the carnival and a sense of dread and suffocation in the city that yeah. felt stylized to a point, but needed to be contained within the realms of uh, reality in the in the Jungian way that William Lindsay Gresham used the characters 
to portray almost like a conversation with his, his own components of the self. I knew this was really interesting to do, and, uh, it, but it required to keep it in a psychological, realistic profile. Uh, because the ending of the movie, the movies, uh, the, the shape of the circle is visually and narratively very important in the movie, and we use it repeatedly. Not only the movie is sort of a circular structure, but uh, the circle of the arena of the geek pursues a stand for the duration of the movie, because he, that is his destiny uh, in the way he builds it. And like in any noir, we need to see him build it. So that needs to stay in the realism. So, uh, and finally, the thing that was extremely hard within those boundaries is that the movie, rather than having peaks and valleys and ups and downs and many adventures, is like a steady, slow-burning ramp towards a brutal ending. Mm. And everything, all the, all the chips are on that ending. Uh, that's, that's what we need to land. Everything else needs to lead you to that. You know, it's interesting, and I don't want to give a spoiler, but there's two distinct phases to the film, and yes. there's almost there's almost two movies in a way, yes. and yes. there's there's joy in parts of it, but there's definitely one part that's happier for Stanton and one part that's much darker for him. Like, were you aware of that the whole time? That or is that just almost an accident of the storytelling process, but you have two very distinct phases and places. No, no, we knew it from the beginning. We, we knew from the beginning that some of the storytelling decisions needed to stay the same, for example, and evolve. For example, we constantly shoot Stanton in the dark mm -hmm. with no light at all. His face is a, a hollow, a black mm -hmm. hollow, uh, or from behind, we don't even see him. Uh, we stay on his back for some of the key moments in the movie. Yeah. Uh, we gave it continuity with little touches like uh, uh, his behavior, his, um, uh, to, to give you an example, the way he eats when he has nothing is exactly the way he eats when he has everything, mm -hmm. you know? And, and what we tried to do is made visually a very, very conscious decision to change the color palette of the movie and the yeah. shapes of the movie and the feel. The carnival is humid, muddy, full of color. The color red is abundant. Mm -hmm. There's steam coming out of the ground. We, we frame the, the carnival with a lot of sky. You see a lot of beautiful skies and the city is cold. The only red that remains from the carnival is Molly in her wardrobe, you know? We don't show the sky almost ever in the city. We, we very rarely go to an exterior, you know, mm -hmm. and the exteriors are gloomy or overcast, mm -hmm. you know, or framed by buildings. And these are decisions that are narrative. And in actuality, they were accentuated by the pandemic, which interrupted the movie after we had shot most of the second half. Then uh, it became more urgent and interesting to make the carnival a period that was somewhat, not completely, but somewhat more innocent and youthful for Stanton, when he still had hope for yeah. salvation. You know, he's the same yeah. guy, but you see, you see him become a little more flinty and cruel towards the end of the carnival. You know, 
he becomes a lot more calculating and he's capable of betrayal a lot more at the end of the carnival. But this is a movie that opens with him dragging a dead corpse, a corpse, a yeah. dead body into a ground, into the ground and burning a house. Yeah. So it's not, it's not exactly a guy that you completely trust. No, ever. no, no. There were signs there early on. Absolutely. Kate Blanchett and Bradley Cooper is great as well, but Kate Blanchett is just fantastic because this, you know, proto femme fatale who's also a psychoanalyst. That, I don't know, Shaja Hitchcock and stuff like that. Was she in your mind always that it had to be her because she just inhabits it brilliantly? 100%. I, I, we wrote most of the parts of the movie, we wrote for the actors that play them. And I developed a TV series with Kate about five years, four years ago. And uh, we couldn't do it. It was a noir, a noir TV series. And okay. uh, she was the central character. And I, and I just, it stayed on my mind that she belonged to the genre in a way that I don't think many actresses can, mm. you know? And uh, what was interesting with her is to import with her, the camera style, the style of the dialogue, the staging of the scenes changes for the second half. It becomes yeah. a lot more elegant. It brings with it all the style of the genre and uh, the dialogue becomes more stylized and rhythmically different. And, and it, it is only possible because of Kate. Uh, Bradley Cooper does a phenomenal job. I think is the best work he's done as an actor in my estimation, but he is our guide into everything. If you notice, we enter the carnival through him, we enter the spectacle through him, we enter the city through him. Uh, he is, we are following him. The camera is quite literally following him. The camera is always moving, but it's always behind him, always uh, watching him and entering these places. And, 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 and uh, you know, just as Clem embodies the carnival, you know, with Willem Dafoe. Yeah. So Lilith embodies the city mm. with eight. Yeah. You mentioned uh, lockdown and the interruptions there. You know, I've been lucky enough to talk to lots of filmmakers and actresses and actresses. And it's it, the more I meet of all you guys, it's a miracle that any movie gets made. Like, it, it really is. And despite your huge success, I mean, you've won Oscars. So, you know, that's the totem pole. You're at the top of it, I guess. But mm -hmm. you as well, like you mentioned this Noor series with Craig Blanchett, but you have plenty of movies that have never seen the light of day oh, yeah. as well, I imagine, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, ha I have written or co-written 32 or 33 screenplays. I wow. made 11 movies, so there are... Yeah, <laughs> many, many, many movies that I would have loved to make and I have not made. Uh, but that is the nature of the of the business. I think yeah. the natural state of a movie is to not get made, and, okay. and, and you have to will it into into being. Okay. Uh, you, you're always given limits. For example, we knew that we needed to make a hundred million dollar movie that looked like a hundred million dollar movie for sixty on this movie. Wow. You know, wow. we, I knew that I needed to make a $60 million movie in Shape of Water for 19.3, <laughs> you know? So it's always, the your ambitions always surpass the budget, but yeah. that's the natural way the movies uh, sort of incentivize creativity. So I'm yeah. at peace with that. Again, another good way of putting it. I mentioned the Oscars and 
you know, despite the things everybody say about the Oscars and the problems, you know, that might have been over the years and all that, I still think they're great for two reasons. One, because the speeches can be phenomenal. They can be yeah. bad, but sometimes they can really strike a chord. And two, they bring a lot of attention to movies that people mm -hmm. might never see. And I know people who sit down and watch all the Oscar nominees every year, and they normally wouldn't watch Mexican movies or Spanish movies or Japanese movies or Korean yeah. movies, but they do because of the Oscars. So on both those counts, firstly, on the speeches, I thought your speech in 2018 was absolutely fantastic and, and people you. may know and they can find it on youtube but to begin a speech by saying i am an emigrant it, it was yeah. just brilliant and it was it was part of the zeitgeist i'm wondering here we are nearly four years later yeah uh, do you think like in terms of what you said in that speech and making art to help erase borders have things gotten better or worse you know, uh, I think they gradually changed towards the better, but uh, it changed obviously never, never feels fast enough when you're talking about uh, things that were uh, that that you've been carrying for decades or more. You know, mm. I think that uh, in the last few years after uh, Shape, uh, I personally have been able to start a couple of scholarships, produce interesting projects. Uh, you can see uh, more and more uh, Latin American filmmakers uh, emerge, more international filmmakers take the arena of the world's attention. And, and I agree with you about the Oscars. The thing is, we live in a world of headlines that want to entice eyes rather than entice the truth. Mm -hmm. And the reality is all live events are down. The Grammys are down, the Emmys are down, the Super Bowl is down. This obsession, the Golden Globes didn't the Golden happen Globe, but, but, but what I mean is the new generations and the new generation of informational highway uh, mm -hmm. doesn't demand that you are watching to know the results. Yeah. So that instantly takes all those events down. It's not just the movies, but, we, but I feel that there is a tendency to simplify reality for a headline. Okay. And, and I do think the movies are as proven by the pandemic the three things we need are medicine nourishment and narrative stories yeah. and the consumption of stories in the written form in the audio form or in the audiovisual form was never as intense as in the pandemic it quite literally saved whatever sanity we still have i'm not mm -hmm. sure it saved it all I, I do believe that some form of ontological apocalypse has occurred in our minds and we're just catching up with the consequences. I do, yeah. believe, I do believe that uh, what this pandemic did to us as a species and our capacity to see each other will be measured in a few years' time. Yeah. But in the meantime, I feel it very acutely and, and it's reflected. I think the movie encapsulates the anxiety of our times and, yeah. and 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 it talks about very very important topics and and emotions that exist yeah. right now last thing and it's related to what you're saying believe it or not i have a copy of your first movie <laughs> on dvd right see that and don't worry i'm not going to ask you to sign or anything but i just want to show you that because i moved house for four years ago or something like that and i'd spent my life 
collecting movies and I couldn't bring myself to throw them out. So they're now in a room all over the walls. And I, I saw your one today. Does it bother you or make you sad that, you know, my children, for instance, when they go to watch a movie, they're not going to have one of these anymore unless they're no. real collectors or whatever. Does it sadden you that now it's it's at the touch of a button and there's less and less people clutching these things the way they used to? Maybe it doesn't. I will, I will tell you this. Uh, it is a tendency of our species to try to define the future by calculating it from the present. Yeah. And that is an enormous mistake. Okay. My kids, my kids are enamored of LPs. They wow. collect, they collect cassettes. They love cassettes. And, wow. and, and, and if you think about it, a lot of analog media is making a huge comeback mm. at the same time that analog possession goes to NFTs. Mm. It's, it's yeah. not, the, the culture is not a logical evolution. It's a zigzagging of the zeitgeist into what it means to be artistically elated. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think that in my personal belief, I believe in the possession of physical media because I'm always afraid of dictatorship of the mind. I want okay. to be able to pull out a DVD whether the person that tells me is good or bad wants to make it available to me. So yeah. I have a very 20th century view <laughs> of totemic magic to the possession okay. of an object, you know? So yeah. the cultural artifact to me is a concretion of a big artistic journey that has value. And, okay. uh, and I think, uh, you know, is it permanent gone, permanently gone? I don't think so. Look, look at the way we can listen to an opera or an operetta when those theaters are gone, but we can listen to it on LP, CD, you know, uh, it's a, an art form or a narrative form that has been alive for hundreds of years. Yeah. So I, I expect that our relationship with audiovisual storytelling may lose some of the adjectives that make it cinema, but there will always be that connection with who we are and how we like to be represented in images and sounds. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's a very hopeful way to finish. You know, if movie making suddenly hits the skids, you could work as a philosopher in some university, I'm sure. So <laughs> <And that's, laughs> I'll save the soap books for a little later. <laughs> it was lovely to talk to you. And thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Cheers. You too. Or night. Bye -bye. You're half. That's split 50-50. Not interested. I got what I wanted. But you should have seen him. My God. I think they'll be talking about that the rest of his life. I think every time they tell it, it'll just get better and better, bigger and bigger. Toast, then, to your success. Uh, he asked me to uh, see one of his friends. And who might that be? He didn't say, but I'm considering it. I'll tell you what, you got a safe? I do. You should keep this for me. I don't want Molly to know about it anyway. Why don't you keep it for a few days? If you change your mind, we'll split a 50-50. And if not, I'll keep it. You barely know me. Oh, I know you well. I know you're no good. And I know that because
a clip there from Nightmare Alley. And before that, you heard me talking to Guillermo del Toro, the great film director, very philosophical fellow. And uh, and Nightmare Alley is in cinemas from this Friday. That is the 21st of January. And incidentally, we have goodie bags attached with Nightmare Alley to give away. The goodie bags include an art of book, books of images from the movie. There's a pooch bag. There's a tote bag. There's an eye mask. So if you'd like one of these goodie bags, simply text the word nightmare to 53106 or you can email us screentime at newstalk.com and Marie Kane will pick a winner and a goodie bag will make its way to you if you are one of those winners. Up next, Mark Royal and the week's new releases. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks TV and Movie Show. We turn to the week's new releases. We're going to be looking at Kenneth Branagh's much-talked-about Belfast. And also, we're going to talk again about Nightmare Alley because it's about to get the Mark Ryle treatment. And that means Mark Ryle is here. Hello, Mark. Hey, John. How are you doing? Are you ready to give your treatment? I am. Has he left? <laughs> yeah, yeah, He's gone. It's fine. <laughs> He's not still with me. Let, I hope you liked it. But let's talk about that in a minute. I do want to talk about Belfast. It's a movie that's been talked about for a long time. It, it seems to yeah. have been on the circuit, but it is only arriving in cinemas this Friday, the 21st of January. In case people don't know, just tell us quickly what it's about. The clue's in the title, obviously. <laughs> it is, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been talked about a while. I think I saw this over a month ago now, so I'm struggling to remember. But anyway, Belfast, it's uh, Kenneth Branagh's uh, semi-autobiographical tale of growing up in a Protestant working class family in Belfast during the Troubles. And um, the, the Branagh proxy here is Buddy, who's played by a newcomer called Jude Hill. He's tremendous. Um, it is set in 1969. Buddy is a very happy nine-year-old who's, like all nine-year-olds, his world begins and ends at the end of his street. And then uh, this street is destroyed along with, I suppose, his innocence when militant loyalists riot and terrorize his Catholic neighbors. And uh, the father is played by Jamie Dornan. He's off working in England. And the mother, played by Katrina Balfe, is left trying to keep things together at home. And that's it in a nutshell. And he also has the presence of his uh, paternal his grandparents, played by uh, Kieran Hines and Dame Judy Dench. Uh, Sir Kenneth of Branagh and uh, Dame Judy of Dench. In yes, indeed. They, they tend to go hand in hand, don't they, in terms of English acting royalty. Uh, I have seen this as well. I liked it a lot. What did you make of it? It's lovely. Um, it's, it's a movie that's full of warmth and heart and just, you know, good people trying to do their best in difficult circumstances. And I think the charm of this is that it's a movie that's set during the Troubles, and it's not mired in misery and sectarianism and bitterness. And Bran has done something very clever. He's, he tells the story from, from Buddy's perspective. So if you like, this is war through the eyes of a child. And if it ever starts to feel a little bit light and trivial, you just have to remind yourself that a, a nine-year-old growing up during the Troubles would not only have a, probably a flimsy understanding of what is happening, but he would also do everything that he could to ignore it and just get on with the business of being a nine-year-old. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even though it's it's warm and it's sweet and it's about people protecting each other, I mean, 
there is grim moments in it and it's the start of the troubles when you know two communities are, are turning on each other so there's a darkness there but there's it's not like for want of a better phrase a misery memoir you know mm. it's not it's not mired in any of that because as you say rightly it's told through a kid's eyes the mm. the kid in question jude hill he's just absolutely phenomenal in it isn't he isn't he yeah he's just he's, he is he's fantastic um yeah it's not it's not all um about the troubles i suppose the, no. the big the big central conflict at the heart of this is whether um the father can convince the mother to move their family out of belfast and out of danger or whether the mother can convince the father to ride it out and to stay in the town she loves where mm. their roots are but i mean the charm is in the little victories and these little sketches of memories from Brown's past, like mm. uh, like the drama of of Nick and a bar of Turkish delight of all things, or or you know contriving just the right level of progress in school to secure the desk beside the girl that he has a crush on, mm. and it's these these little details that it, it's what make it so charming. It's not it's not a big it's not a it's not a, a an issues based movie that beats you around the head. No, absolutely not. And in the right way that what's going on in the outside world bleeds into it slowly and organically. And it's also full of beautiful and glorious and occasionally sad emotion, the way the world sees this kid. And the most affecting thing, there's a lot of affecting things in it, but I thought the relationship with his, particularly his granddad, Kieran Hines, was yeah. absolutely beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I have to say, Judy Dench and Kieran Hines, they're the, they are the sort of grandparents that every nine-year-old deserves. And it, I thought it was really nice to see a married couple of a certain age who didn't want to kill each other, who were still yeah. very much in love and who enjoyed each other's company. You know, you really don't see enough of that. No, the only slight quibble, and it is a slight one, and maybe I shouldn't even be making, but here we go. I did think Jame, Dame Judy Dench's accent at times that you know it was it was very yeah. towards leprechaun at times which i was surprised yeah. about yeah i know i i hear i hear where you're coming from and, and that, that i don't really have much time for for that at the best of times but i i i, I think you kind of it's charming enough that you're willing to to, to just go that the, the the one um sarah note for me was the colin morgan who played the unionist terrorist guy mm-hmm. who keeps showing up and intimidating jamie dornan with these vague threats about supporting the cause it's that's a bit i thought, thought that was a bit cliched and hackneyed and then there's this face-off moment towards the end of the movie that is is very very it's it's kind of overdone but like i said you, you really just have to go with it mm. and also uh katrina balf is brilliant as his mother jamie dornan who you know I, 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 sometimes i haven't i haven't got the thing he's an incredibly handsome man there's no divine that i enjoyed him in the fall but i've seen him other things that i'm nonplussed about i thought he was great as the dad trying to do his best to occasionally maybe spends too much on the horses but wants the best for his family and his kids and his wife i i thought he was really good as well what were your thoughts on him i think i think he's i think he's I, th- I think he's great i think he's getting better and mm. you know he's he's picking interesting roles and uh i like i didn't have a problem with him i like anytime i've seen him in anything recently um i've always been you know um you know pleasantly surprised and katrina balf as you say i'm not like i didn't i'm not a fan of outlander i think it's the tv thing that yeah. she does but she's like everybody in this is is, is fantastic you know yeah um, absolutely are. go on you were going to say i was just going to say it reminded me a bit of uh john borman's hope and glory but i suppose that's oh, yeah. not the worst thing you could you could say about a movie absolutely not and i want to mention the van morrison soundtrack i mean it's i don't think he wrote anything specifically for it but it's all his songs Thank and God. i thought 
I thought they were used brilliantly though. And you know, Van Morrison has this thing. It's it's a very hard thing to do. Paul McCartney can do it. I, I think your man from The Cure can do it a bit as well. To sing happy songs and not your sound man from the cure, how dare you? Yeah, I know. I did that for you, Robert Smith. But to sing happy and not sound like you're going to get punched in the face. It's a hard thing to do. Stevie Wonder can do it as well. You know, sometimes when people are singing happy songs, it's, it's there's something that just sounds too cheesy, but Van Morrison was one of those people who can carry it off. And I thought that the choice of the music of his was, was great. And I think most of the musical bits where you hear saxophones and, oh, that's him playing that as well from an instrumental album. So I like the music. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the bit where, um, uh, the, what you call it, uh, Dornan mimes very elaborately to everlasting Sting love. love. I think, that probably could have that that the, the magical realism of that. I think it, it's kind of been maybe ill considered. But as I say, you just you just go with it. It's just a really nice movie, you know. What are you going to say, stars wise, for Belfast? Um, I am going to give it a four. It's just a, a lovely story and it's well told. Yeah, I'm going to give it a four as well. So let's take a clip of Belfast. And I watched every night too that they were up there. And how did I never see my Collins in the mothership doing his orbit? Surely you would have seen the sheep of Columbus against the light of the moon. No, that's because mostly he was on the dark side. Exactly, it's the side that Lucifer hangs his shillelagh. No, he was on the dark side of the moon most of the time where we couldn't see him. You know, when he was doing his orbit and then maybe, you know, just before he was due to come around the corner, you had to go in for your tea. If I could come up with something smart about that, maybe I could step at the top desk and wait till she gets back there. You could say the moon's made of green cheese and drop down a place. Or you could do the project together, you and the young lady. You get the same marks and maybe end up on the same seat together. But how do you even talk to her? How do you handle oh. a woman? There's a way, said the wise old man. <coughs> a way known by every woman since the whole rigmarole. Yes, or rigmarole with you, mister. That's a clip of Belfast. You heard the aforementioned uh, Jude Hall there, the young kid who is great in it, as is Kieran Hines, who you heard there, and Jane Doody Dench. Her her accent notwithstanding. Uh, that's Belfast. It's in cinemas this Friday, the 21st of January, and me and Mark both gave it four. Now, Mark, earlier in the show, I had a long interview with Guillermo del Toro, who I greatly enjoyed talking to, about his movie Nightmare Ali, so you know, listeners who've just tuned in, give us a really quick presse of the movie because you know, screen time listeners listen from beginning, middle, and end. So you know, yeah. I haven't missed anything. But tell us quickly what's going on in Nightmare Alley. Yeah, so this is based on uh, William Leslie Gresham's novel, which was already adapted for the screen in 1947 with Tyrone Power. I have to confess, I never saw that, and I know nothing about the book, so I had no preconceived notions to this. It is set in Depression-era America, and Bradley Cooper plays Stanton Carlyle. He's a man running from his past, and Carlyle stumbles into a job working as a carny with Willem Dafoe's uh, Travelling Carnival, and he befriends a couple of fake psychics or mentalists played by Tony Collette and David Strathairn. Um, and they show him a few of the secrets of their trade. Then um, uh, Carlisle also falls in love with another carnival performer who plays by uh, Rooney Mara. And eventually his ambitions outgrow the carnival and he takes uh, Mara off to New York to, I suppose, pursue his manifest, manifest destiny and to play his own trade as a stage mentalist. Yes, indeed. And he rubs up against a possibly scheming psychoanalyst. So what did you make of it? Uh, it looks absolutely gorgeous. Mm. Um, 
it is visually stunning and you know i would expect no, no less from del toro because he's a very visually oriented filmmaker and i if he ever gets bored with directing he could very very easily become an award-winning production designer not that that is likely to happen but he, I, I ended my interview with him by saying he could become a philosopher in a university or somewhere so you know there's we've jobs for the boys here on screen time this week or for one boy in particular He's got options. As well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The production design, that set design uh, of this is just, it's immaculate. Um, the first act, I think, set in the, the traveling carnival it, is a delight. And that's Del Toro's bread and butter, really. It's one of his favorite themes uh, is the allure of the, the freak and the hidden charm of the outcast that's been shunned from society. And that carnival setting gives him plenty of opportunities to explore that theme. It, it it loses focus in the second act when we move into the, the more sophisticated, the polished surroundings of New York. And then the story shifts into a different gear, into this neo-noir, almost thriller kind of mode. I don't what how, what did you think of it? No, uh, that that worked for me, you know, uh, because I, I, I like the noir feel of it. I thought Kate Blanchett was outstanding as that kind of proto femme fatale, you know, mm. uh, I, I mean, I, but I also particularly enjoyed the, uh, uh, carnival bits and I really wasn't expecting where it went. The fact that it dovetails into this almost completely different movie. Uh, and I thought it was shot great. And, and again, sorry, Guillermo was pointing out to me, my good friend, how so much of the action takes place almost from, Stanton's view from Bradley Cooper's character, like you're almost watching mm. it from behind him. So I liked it a lot, I have to say. And again, I I, I say it to you regularly. Mm. It was one of those movies that did occur to me a few days after I'd finished watching. A couple of the scenes popped into my head and continued to not haunt me, but pop into my head. You know, so so I liked it for the most part. Mm-hmm. I think that that, that yeah, that my my biggest problem with it is that I don't think Bradley Cooper was the right choice for that role. It just feels as though he was been he was miscast. Unfortunately, I don't. Yeah, I, like I, I don't like saying it, but I think that's it's 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 it. Yeah, there's no way around it. Um, I think Guillermo del Toro, he's a master of form, but he can sometimes be let down by content. I do think that sometimes he's so focused on the visual aspect that he sometimes loses sight of the story. And um, this one was, it was two and a half hours. And although it, it never felt like it was dragging, mm. it does sometimes feel that there were bits of this story that were missing. And um, Carlisle, which is the role that um, Bradley Cooper was playing, he's not what you would describe as a compelling protagonist. He's just not inherently good enough or evil enough in either direction to really make us give much of a damn about what happens to him either way. And it often felt like the, the, the audience, if you like, is a few steps ahead of him, which is not really where you should be. You see, I thought what I liked about his character was, you know, he was that old thing. He was, he was a prisoner of his own demons and he had feet of clay and you always knew he was going to fail and, and that he would make any decision just to try and experience another experience. So I guess we had a different sense of that. What did you think of Kate Blanchett? I thought, I mean, she is, she makes a really fantastic femme fatale, yeah. but she did seem a bit subdued. I would have liked to have seen 
a bit of serious scenery chewing <laughs> but <laughs> but i suppose i suppose that's just against her 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 nature and her every instinct um rooney mara i have to quickly talk about she she i think she had a bit of a thankless role she's not really given much to work with but the, like there's the, the supporting cast are, are, are fantastic you know william um, defoe is great william defoe and yeah tony collette mm, just tony like collette oh, these, well. these 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 people just keep on popping up all the way through it and it, it's 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 great so it's nearly there so what would you say stars wise? Uh, I'm going to give it three and a half. I think it's almost there, but not quite. Yeah, I think I was going to give it a three and a half as well. I mean, I'm tempted to give it a four, but I gave Belfast a four and it's not as good as Belfast. I mean, it's a very different movie. So uh, so I'll go three and a half as well. That's three and a half for Nightmare Alley. Also in cinemas this week. And before that, we we're talking about Belfast, which we gave four stars. Mark, thank you very much. Thanks, John. Talk to you next week. Up next. Boston's favourite son, Larry Donnelly, on his favourite movie. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks TV and Movie Show. It's that stage of the week where we talk to a person of note about their favourite movie. Larry Donnelly is a well-known commentator on American politics, mostly on the Irish airwaves. He's a lecturer in NUI Galway. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, when I was a young researcher, I may have been the first person ever to get him on News Talk Radio. But more of that anon, he's just published a memoir of sorts called The Bostonian, Life in an Irish-American Political Family. It also turns out from what I've been reading in the journal, he's quite a movie buff or certainly a movie fan. He might be more comfortable with me saying that. Hello, Larry. How are you? Great to be with you, John. So listen, without further ado, your favorite movie. And it seems to me that it's without question your favorite movie. Will you tell our listeners? Sure. My favorite is the 1970s classic Jaws. Uh, I love it for lots of reasons. I, I think the characters uh, are fascinating, ranging from the, the, the chief of police, played by Roy Scheider, to the salty old fisherman Quint, played by Robert Shaw, uh, to uh, Matt Hooper, played by uh, Richard Dreyfus, who's the shock expert, to the corrupt politician, the mayor of uh, Amity Island, where it's set, uh, Larry Vaughn. Uh, I love everything about the movie, and I especially love the fact that it's set in my home state of Massachusetts on the island, uh, Amatha's Vineyard just off Cape Cod. I think Jaws has something for everyone. There's lots to it. But we should say, you know, most people are aware of the movie and they know it's this shark that's terrorizing this seaside community. But the politician in question wants to keep the beaches open for financial reasons and political reasons, right? Yes. Well, the police chief, uh, Roy Scheider, who played by Roy Scheider, is an export from, or an import, I should say, from New York City. And he takes a very hawkish view that they need to shut the beaches, that they need to eliminate the threat to public safety and that's the first priority uh, he's bolstered as everyone knows in that regard by Richard Dreyfus playing Matt Hooper the shock expert whereas on the other hand um, the mayor being the quintessential politician that he is I suppose uh, is balancing his constituents needs and wants uh, because it is a resort uh, island the people who live there year-round are dependent upon tourism uh, for their existences for, for their livelihoods uh, so to, for them to have the beaches shut down uh, would be disastrous. So as such, the mayor, shamelessly looking for looking to his own political self-interest, uh, repeatedly does the bidding uh, of those business people who want things to remain going despite the, the looming threat to public safety and indeed uh, the deaths of people who go into the ocean. Uh, it is, uh, I suppose it's black humor, uh, but it, you know, and whoever, Pete eventually who wrote the book must have had, a, had it in for politicians because uh, the mayor, Mayor Vaughn, I suppose, in many ways, uh, represents the lowest of the low in some of his political thinking, which, again, uh, I find oddly hilarious. 
Yeah. Now, I actually watched it with my nine-year-old just before Christmas. I've seen it lots of times like you. And, you know, he's a kid raised on CGI and, and to him, anything pre-2005 looks fake. But even he was saying, this is a really good movie. This is kind of scary. Like the shark, for all its, you know, fakeness, it's still a pretty terrifying or certainly highly suspenseful movie when they're in the water in the second half of the film. Hey, absolutely. You know, my, your son and my own son who watches Jaws with me regularly, mm. they're in a different era altogether. But I think it speaks to what an extraordinary film, what an extraordinary production it was that they had that lifelike shock. And again, the shock is absolutely massive uh, in size. And that's really demonstrated in the second half of the movie when you see Quint's boat uh, and the shock up against it. Uh, the famous line from the movie from Roy Scheider is, I think we're going to need a bigger boat. Uh, and clearly when you see the size of that shock, um, you know why. Uh, and again, you know, the, the people are so obsessed with the movie Jaws, there's numerous podcasts about it. Uh, and there was huge difficulties with that shock because again, for its time, it was very difficult, uh, but they plowed ahead uh, and made a movie that, you know, judging by our son's reaction has clearly stood the test of time. They certainly did. And it's a, it's a wonderful choice and no argument for me. You write for the journal.ie regularly. And I, the article I was referencing was one you did before Christmas about your top favorite movies. And, you know, you're an academic in, in one sense of the phrase. So one might expect you'd be choosing, you know, I don't know, French New Wave Cinema or something like that. I don't know. But they're very popcorny movies, which I which I salute. Don't get me wrong, but you have Rocky in there. There's all sorts of ones. So you you're you're a man who likes to be I, I suppose entertained by what you watch as opposed to them changing your life. Or or maybe I'm misreading that. But I was taken I was taken by the list. Absolutely. I mean, uh one of the things that, that my wife is always surprised by is when she met me, she thought I would be a man of high literature and, and, and all the sort of highbrow taste. Uh, the reality is I'm not. Uh, I really like uh, movies I can uh, sit back and enjoy because uh, most of the time in my daily life, I'm following politics. I'm reading about law. I'm reading about current affairs. I'm listening to it on the radio, watching it on TV, uh, all those sorts of things. Uh, and when I, when, I, when I watch a film, uh, I want to kick back and relax uh, and enjoy it uh, and escape really as you say from some of the harsher realities of life. And I think that's reflected uh, in the list of films uh, that I've chosen, all of which represent escapes of one type or another, whether it's in comedy, whether it's, a, I suppose, in horror or suspense, or whether it's a return uh, back to my hometown of Boston, where some of my favorite films are set. It sounds good to me. Well, listen, you mentioned Boston and all that, and you have this memoir of sorts I'd call The Bostonian, Life in an Irish-American Political Family. It's gotten very good reviews. I'm always honest about this. I have to watch too much movies, so I don't read as many books as I have life, so I haven't read it. But my understanding of it is it's about growing up in Boston, being of Irish stock, having a highly politically focused family. People may not know, but you're, uh, I, I, I'm not sure the exact relation, but Brian Donnelly of the Donnelly Visa fame was a member of your family. And then it's also about you're moving to Ireland, giving up and possibly being a lawyer. So what was the motivation? Was it just to map your life and times? Yeah, I was, I was very lucky, I would say to people, in the sense that I was approached initially by the publisher uh, Gil Books uh, and Deirdre Nolan uh, was a woman who had published uh, two of Katrina Perry's books from RTE. Uh, and I did a public interview with Katrina Perry at the U.S. Embassy 
uh, and Deirdre then approached me saying, I think there's a book in you. Uh, and I went away and I thought about it and I came back to her with a proposal that in some ways is a little bit incongruous in the sense that uh, the book that came to be, The Bostonian, uh, is really a number of different elements. First, it is the story of my family's political history since we emigrated from the West of Ireland, uh, I suppose culminating in my uncle, as you mentioned, Brian Donnelly, uh, who conceived of the Donnelly visa as a distinction of being more famous in another country uh, than in his own as a, poli a politician. Uh, it then moves on on to my own uh, time growing up in, in Boston, uh, a time that a lot of people, Irish people, are very interested in, both because they would have spent time in Boston in that era and because uh, the films in particular set in Boston around that era are very popular. Uh, it was a turbulent era, it was a turbulent time, uh, and I suppose I try to shed some light on what it really was like to grow up in the city then, uh, and I talk about my, my educational choices and different things in my own life, and then how uh, it was that I made that strange journey of reverse immigration uh, from an Irish-American family uh, back to Ireland and how Ireland has been in many ways uh, the land of opportunity for me, both uh, professionally, you know, in academia and in public life uh, and in uh, personally for me, my wife and having a family and that sort of thing. Uh, but then I move on to political analysis, both political analysis of Ireland uh, and the United States, uh, my outsider's eye, my outside looking in on Ireland, and my, I suppose, my renewed glaze on America from afar. Uh, and lastly, I close with some thoughts uh, on the future of the transit, transatlantic relationship, uh, the two places that I'm very, very proud to call home. And, you know, I, I was finally then, I, I was actually listening to Gabriel Byrne talking to Tommy Tiernan last week, and he was talking about the, the idea of, of being an immigrant. And he had this kind of sad take on it, having gone to London and then New York, that you no longer belong in the place that you left and you're not quite where you are now. But I have a sense you don't see it that way. You feel very much a citizen of, of two coasts, one on the east and one on the west and the east as well a bit. That, that's absolutely right. I mean, I only feel that way. And I heard Gabriel Brown. I only feel that way when I first land in Boston or when I first land back in Ireland after I've been to Boston. Uh, but the reality is both places are still very, very much home. And one has become my home. One always will be my home. Uh, and in that, in that regard, uh, I feel very, very lucky. And I hope that's one of the things uh, that shines through in the book is that I am very proud and very lucky uh, to have two places I call to call home, two places I love daily, two places I know a lot of Irish people love daily, and two places I know uh, a lot of Americans love daily too. Very good. Very good. Well, we're glad to have you here. His book is called The Bostonian Life in an Irish American Political Family. And his favorite movie, without question, is Jaws. Larry Donnelly, thank you very much. Look, the situation is that apparently a great white shark has staked a claim in the waters off Amity Island. And he is going to continue to feed here as long as there is food in the water. And there's no limit to what he's going to do. I mean, we've already had three incidents. Two people killed inside of a week, and it's going to happen again. It happened before. The Jersey Beach. 1916, there were five, five people chewed up in the surf. In one week. Tell them about the swimmers. A shark is attracted to the exact kind of splashing and activity that occurs whenever human beings go in swimming. You cannot avoid it. If you open the beaches on the 4th of July, it's like ringing the dinner bell, for Christ's sake. Mr. Vaughn, Mr. Vaughn, I pulled a tooth the size of a shot glass out of the rectal of the boat out there, and it was the tooth of a great white. It was Ben Gardner's boat. It was all chewed up. I helped tow it in. You, sh you should have seen him. Where, where is that tooth? Did you see it, Broden? No, I didn't see it. He, he dropped it. Yeah, I had an accident. Way in. And what did you say the name of this shark is? It's a carcarid and carcarius. It's a great white. But you, you don't have the tooth. Look, we depend on the summer people here for our very lives. You are not going and to have the summer. Those beaches, we're, we're not only going to have to close the beach, we're going to have to hire somebody to kill the shark. 
And that was, of course, Jaws, as chosen by Larry Donnelly as his favourite movie. And my thanks to him and also my thanks to Anne-Marie Kane, who helped out on the show this week, as she does every week. That is it for this week. Just remind you, this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on Newstalk. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Take care and we'll do it all again next week.